Hey, it's Kanzano. I appreciate you making this podcast part of your day. Make sure you subscribe if you want more and leave us some feedback. Away we go. Initialize sequence. Welcome to The Baldcast, a production of John Kanzano's Baldface Truth. Well, it's Oregon Washington week, and we've got a real dose of Oregon Washington on this show, and it's been fun. I mean, you look at 114 meetings. And for the first time, you've got two teams ranked in the top ten playing. Mike Farrell covers the Huskies for the Seattle Times, does a fantastic job. He's a great follow on Twitter, at Mike Farrell on Twitter. Mike, what has this week been like for you? Yeah, I think it's been interesting just to see the approach of, you know, the coaches, the players from the other side because you go into some of these weeks and you get the, the rigmarole of it's another game, it's another game, it's a faceless opponent, and, and people have that philosophy. And I think it's been a, a big enough game and a big enough week where Washington's coaches have kind of disregarded that. And they said, yeah, it's a huge game. They know that. They're saying that. Ryan Grubb, UW's offensive coordinator, agreed that it's the biggest game of his coaching career. Kalen uh, DeBoer, DeBoer is also being pretty honest about the stakes here. So I think it's kind of transcended a certain uh, a certain popularity and in a, a certain level of stakes where you know everyone is acknowledging the scene here in College Game Day being in town and the stage and the opportunity at hand. Yeah, I want to go go right to Game Day. You, you guys wrote about that in the Seattle Times, but how does that Game Day appearance frame this game or maybe change that game, or or, or is it a distraction to have? Pat McAfee interviewing Kalen DeBoer and, you know, just the extra stuff that's around all week. I think it can be a distraction, certainly, but I also think it's something that they just have to accept because if Washington wants to be what it wants to be and be on a certain stage and enter the Big Ten and be able to recruit nationally and present themselves as a national brand, they have to do things like this. And, you know, just watching the Pat McAfee show the last couple of hours and he's stationed inside Husky Stadium and talking to all the people back in Indianapolis, it's kind of evident how little understanding there is around this program where, you know, he sounds flabbergasted. He said, oh, it's really beautiful here, as if he didn't know. And, I mean, I think at Washington, we market it as the greatest setting in college football, but you've got to have a microphone to shout that. And I think they know that this is an opportunity for them to do that and that they have to do that to get where they want to be at the Big Ten. The, uh, there's always a little extra electricity. I'm sure this, this game is uh, a hot ticket. I looked on StubHub, and it looked like, you know, you're talking about 300 bucks if you want to sit in the lower level at Husky Stadium. How 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 does this game match up to games maybe in recent history that you can remember covering as far as ticket demand and excitement? Yeah, I mean, this is the biggest one in my tenure. I've been covering the team since 2019, so I don't go all the way back. But, I mean, this is going to be the first sellout here since 2019 in the Apple Cup, and I believe the Oregon game that year also sold out. But all of a sudden you have a pandemic in there, and it's hard to build that back up in terms of hitting the highest highs. And I think, especially here, Husky Stadium, you know, is proud of the fact that it has the loudest game in recorded history against Nebraska in 1992. There is that sense of nostalgia and sense of what Husky Stadium is capable of. So it's going to be interesting to see, as you go in this weekend, can they hit that? They just announced that they're going to have a decibel meter on hand. Can they go over the 133.6 that they – notably got three decades ago. I, I think they talk so much about the greatest setting and what Husky Stadium can be, and now is the time to show it. Let me ask you about the matchups, because uh, you know we, we get hyper-focused on Michael Penix Jr. and Bo Nix, but you know the Washington defense, offense, strengths, weaknesses. Uh, where will your eyes, or where is your mind right now in the run-up to this game as far as the key matchups in this, in this game? 
Yeah, I mean, you just use the phrase, you know, the run, and in terms of how well Oregon has run the ball and how well they ran the ball a year ago, where really, you know, people look from a wider lens and remember that Washington won that game against Oregon. But Oregon ran for 313 yards, six yards per carry, two touchdowns. Washington uh, missed 19 tackles in that game, which is the most in Kalen DeBoer's almost two seasons here. They couldn't bring Bucky Irving down. They really struggled. And they've been somewhat inconsistent in that area this year. So against a team that's leading the country, I believe, in yards per carry, can you slow the running game down enough? I think that's going to be the biggest thing. Not the Bo Nix thing necessarily, not the, the the Heisman comparison. Of course, Michael Penix Jr. has to be excellent. Um, and on the other side, you know, it really is him, but also those wide receivers going against uh, a pretty new secondary for Oregon, a, a talented group, but a group that was not here a season ago. So I look at that the wide receivers against Oregon's DBs and also Washington's ability to stop the run, and that's really going to make the difference. Oregon faced some adversity in Week 2. I was at the game in Lubbock, Texas, and in the second half against Texas Tech, they had to really come from behind to win that game, and they showed a lot of metal. Wasn't there wasn't a clean performance. They made a lot of mistakes. They had a lot of penalties and such, but I like the resilience of that game. At what point have you learned about Washington this season? That's the question. Is I don't know that we fully have. I feel like you know tomorrow's going to be so interesting because you see these things statistically, and the offense is what it was a year ago, plus some. Michael Panix Jr. has been so good, the wide receivers, the tight ends. I think we came into this season knowing exactly what they have in so many areas. But where we don't is some of those things, some of those places where they haven't been fully tested, like like the run defense. You know, the pass rush hasn't been what they expected it to be, at least in terms of sack numbers. Uh, can they get the pass rush going against Oregon? Can the run defense stand up? Can the running game, which has gotten a lot better in recent weeks, continue to churn with Dylan Johnson? I think – there is a certainty around Michael Penix Jr. to, to some, you know, to some extent, as well as the wide receivers and the tight ends. But everything surrounding that hasn't really been tested, and that's partially a credit to them blowing out pretty much every opponent. Even the Arizona game, they were a fumble away from going up three scores in the fourth quarter. So they haven't been tested, and they certainly are going to be tomorrow. Isn't it weird though? When I think about Penix and Bo Nix, there's no part of my brain that can comprehend a situation where one of those guys makes a really bad mistake. I just think they're so good, they're so reliable, they're so calm, they're experienced. Um, you know, Do you see that the same way? Like, I look at every other facet of this game, and I go, hey, there could be a fumble, there could be missed tackles, there could be drop passes, but I'm not worried about Michael Penix or Bo Nix like, throwing a pick six in a bad situation. I don't think that there's going to be a disaster for those teams, but you know, really a twist on that is the fact that one of Michael Penix Jr.'s biggest positives, maybe his biggest positive, is his response to adversity. And I mean, you saw that last year in the Oregon game. He had such a stellar game, but people forget he throws an interception in the end zone that looked right. as an absolute backbreaker in the fourth quarter. You know, on a throw that should never have happened. And then what did he do? He gets the ball back, and I think it was three plays later he rips the 60-yard touchdown to tie the game, and that's the one you remember. And his response to adversity, his response directly after interceptions has been absolutely elite, and that's something that Kalen DeBoer talks about. So obviously you don't want the mistake, and he hasn't made a lot of them. He only has two interceptions this season. But when he does trip up, the immediate response is typically immaculate, and I expect more of that tomorrow. How big is this game for Kalen DeBoer? Huge, huge. I mean, I, you know, starting starting his career, I believe, at 16-2 and two at Washington, he's already solidified himself to some degree. But when you're talking about becoming really one of 
those elite coaches in college football. It's winning on stages like this. And if he wants to build Washington into a perennial top ten program, not one that that peaks out and has great receivers and great quarterback and then has to reload over two or three years. If he wants to maintain that level, if he wants to recruit on that level, which they haven't really done to this point, it's about winning these games and establishing yourself and continuing to beat Dan Lanning and to prove that you are on that level with Oregon every single year. So they've won some really impressive games. They've done a lot, and they've you know exceeded expectations. But just to stay there, you've got to win these games, and you've got to win these games at home. So it's, it's another big test for him. Yeah, and I think it dovetails nicely. And you know, I was, I've been thinking about Oregon's path into the Big Ten, and it, it's evident that they're going to spend. They're going to try to out-recruit everybody. They're going to try to you know, just get better players and, and live on that. And Washington, you know, if they can win this game, I think they go into the Big Ten saying, hey, we beat Oregon twice in a row, and they can recruit off of that. Um, how, how, how is that being talked about uh, among Washington fans, coaches? How often does the Big Ten stuff come up? Yeah, I mean, it comes up often. And I think, you know, when you talk about what the strategy is going to that league, I think Washington is at a little bit of a philosophical crossroads. But I think in the recruiting, it's pretty apparent what they're going to do, where in this upcoming recruiting class, they only have 14 commits, and that's on purpose. They're pretty much done with 14 commits. And why do you leave 10, 12, 13 spots? Because you're losing all of your best players in offense. You're losing the quarterback. You're losing the wide receivers, the tight ends. You're losing, you know, a couple – offensive tackles, uh, potentially linebackers, and they want to be good right away. So this is a, a team that hasn't fully embraced the transfer portal in terms of numbers to this point, and I think they're about to. So, you know, uh, Oregon has certainly done that in recent years, and I think Washington knows that to maintain this level and to be good right away in the Big Ten, you can't rely on retro freshmen and true freshmen to get you there. I think they're going to make a big swing in the transfer portal this offseason and try to go in to the Big Ten with some new names, but hopefully maintain that same level. You know, it's probably unfair to these two guys, but Penix and Bo Nix will go into this game tomorrow with uh, people wondering who's better, who who should get the Heisman vote. I put Penix on my ballot last year. You know, I had him, I think I had him third on my ballot. Um, I thought he deserved it. Is it, too, is it unfair to these guys to say this is the game where we eliminate one of them from the Heisman race? Yeah, I think that is unfair. And I do think, like, you know, talking about it is natural. These are the games that separate yourself. But when you look at Washington in particular, just me being around that program, this is a massive game. But you look at the month of November for them, and if Penix trips up a little bit here, and then he beats USC on the road, and then he beats Utah at home, and then he beats Oregon State on the road, and then he beats Washington State at home, and possibly the last Apple Cup four straight games to finish that season, you can win – you could lose one game and win the Heisman. Caleb Williams lost two and won the Heisman. And there is a lot more meat on the bone for Michael Penix Jr. this season. But still, this is a massive opportunity for both players to position themselves in that in, themselves in that race, but I don't think it's an eliminator by any stretch. Do you think we have an undefeated team in, in Vegas at the end, or, or is it two one-loss teams playing? Um, I, would, I would tend to say no, just because of the history of the Pac-12, and it's just one of those things where they have to show me. I think... You know, there, there is a real strength in the conference, as, as the records and the rankings have shown. I think Washington's really good. USC is really powerful. Oregon, I think, is really well-balanced. Uh, you know, Oregon State is a really, you know, quality team. Washington State, you can go on and on. But it's just such a gauntlet. And even for this Washington team, when they put so much into that, if they win tomorrow, like I said, you still have an absolute nightmare in November. So there's just so many opportunities to slip up, and, and I want to be proven wrong in that, but it'll be interesting if there is a one-loss team in this conference with how good this conference has been, how that one-loss team will be viewed. 
All right. The, Washington uh, now has a new athletic director introduced this week. I noticed they brought the marching band and the cheerleaders out. Felt a little bit like USC, Mike. Uh, you know, what, what was that like for you to, to see a new athletic director come in? And how weird is that to have it happen on the week, a week like this? Yeah, I had, I had remarked to our columnist that it's just a little bit of a strange scene because it's not like you're introducing the football coach where it's this visible this visible name. No one really knew Troy Dannon in these parts. And, you know, when you look at the resume, extremely qualified, and I think, you know, it certainly seems like they made a quality hire. But you're bringing this guy in to steer the ship, and no one really knows who he is. And you bring in the, like you said, the pomp and the circumstance and the cheerleaders and the glitz and the glam. But I think it works out well in terms of doing that on Oregon Week and saying, here's our guy, here's the guy who's going to lead us into the future, we're on this stage, game day is coming. If you wanted to do this and introduce this man when the spotlight was already here, I think they found a pretty good time to do it. But they've got to pay that off on Saturday. Yeah, and, and look, I, I think obviously wins like this help you raise funds, help you recruit. There's a lot of tentacles to this. Uh, I expect, I, I kind of think we're seeing Oregon-Washington Part 1 and Part 2 might happen in December. I mean, are do you think that these yeah. two teams could play again for the title? I think there's absolutely no question. I mean, there's still a lot to be seen with both teams. I, I think Washington's defense is better than it was last year. I, it remains to be seen if they're good enough. I think Oregon is the most balanced team in the conference, and USC might be the most powerful offensively. So it'll just be interesting to see how those teams compare to each other head-to-head. But certainly I think Washington is in a position where it's more complete than it was a year ago. Oregon is more balanced than it was a year ago. And you know, to see this being being potentially one of two, that wouldn't surprise me in any way. So we'll have to see how it plays out. All right, if you handed me the stat sheet at the end of the game and I could only look at one stat, I would probably look at Oregon's rushing yards to, to get a sense of how this game mm-hmm. went. What would you want to see to, as your Rosetta Stone for this game? I honestly think that probably is the answer in terms of can, you know, rushing yards as well as yards per carry. Uh, third downs for both teams, can UW get third down stops? Is Oregon going to be in position on third and one and third and two to roll over them? Also, UW has been really good and has had a huge emphasis on touchdowns in the red zone. And they slipped up a little bit in that area against Arizona. They had a fumble on the five, which, you know, can't happen for that team. But, but they typically – are really, really good about making it hurt. And one more thing, Washington is really, really good when they either give up a turnover, their defense is only allowed one single touchdown and after five turnovers, and their offense, after they get a takeaway, is absolutely lethal. So who can make the most of a, of a turnover in this game? That could spell the difference. Mike Burrell, Seattle Times. Read him at seattletimes.com. Follow him on Twitter. Mike, thank you for joining us. Uh, you know, I appreciate you, and I'll see you in the press box tomorrow. All right, thanks, John. There you have it uh, from Seattle, where game day is already invaded. Uh, look, I think there's just an extra electricity to a game day appearance from ESPN. I've seen it multiple times in the Pac-12, and it generally works out well for the home team. How will it work out for Seattle and the Huskies? We'll find out tomorrow. Leave it here. Coming up in the 4 o'clock hour, I've got a treat for you. It's going to be softy, softy, softy. Plus, a little Michael Penix Jr. in Bo Nix. What am I talking about? Stick around. It's going to be a fun season for Blazer fans who are interested in seeing young players play and grow and evolve. And there's something to that as a sports fan. Maybe it's a little bit of an old-fashioned thought, but I liked the idea back in the day that we got to see 
college football players as freshmen and sophomore and then maybe junior and senior and we got to see them grow and develop and expectations were put on players and we all know that the transfer portal has largely eliminated some of our ability to enjoy that because we can't really count on that trajectory or that arc being there and being present and being part of what we uh, we enjoy as sports fans. And uh, I, I do find myself, though, looking around sports and going, okay, where can you still find that? And, of course, you know, we see some flashes of that in the NFL where teams will draft players and put them in position to, to, to grow a little bit, and then you get a peek at them. I think the Kansas City Chiefs did that last night a little bit with some of their skill position players, young players, rookie players who we got a chance to see, oh, wow, like in – in uh, seven, eight weeks or in a year or two, that could be a really good player. Um, and certainly I think we've seen cases like a, a guy like Brock Purdy, who is the last player drafted in the NFL draft, and the 49ers end up leaning heavily into him. And and we all go, wow, what an amazing story. Here's a guy that is a rookie in the NFL, and all he does is come in and win regular season games. And what's what's up with that? But people forget that Brock Purdy started like 40 games as a college player we got to see him i think it was 34 starts he had as a college player at iowa state we got to see that guy play played in big games he was lethal as a college football player so i don't think iowa state fans are surprised seeing brock purdy succeed in the nfl you know it's it's the rest of us who are going that's a rookie that's the last guy that they picked um so where can you look for that anymore well like i mentioned the blazers and look i'm not here to sell you on the idea that this blazers team is going to go out and make a run for the playoffs or go out and maybe not even win 30 games this year. I think the over-under right now on the Blazers' win total for the season is 27. The Scoot Henderson era, Shaden Sharp, some young players that, you know, could be stars if they continue to develop. And I think Steven was talking about it on yesterday's show. The Blazers have five of the top 100 players in the NBA, but nobody inside the first 48 or so. Uh, you know, uh, you got uh, the Blazers, they don't have Damian Lillard anymore. And we know that, right? Like, people keep telling me that. You know, they don't have Lillard anymore. Um, but I I think this franchise has got problems. And I bring it up all the time. You know, the Root Sports thing that came out this week, that Root Sports would no longer be available on Xfinity, it's really disappointing to me. And I don't buy that the Blazers don't have any control over that. Yes, I know it's a business. Yes, I know Xfinity can go, hey, NBA season's coming. There might be additional demand for the Blazers product. How do we make more money? Well, let's take the Blazers in route right before the season starts, and let's put them on the uh, premium tier package so that diehard Blazer fans will uh, subscribe and pay a little more. But from an organizational standpoint, the Blazers should be pushing back against that. It's a bad look. It's the wrong time to be doing this. The Blazers should have been on the phone to Xfinity and a Root, and Root should have been on the phone to Xfinity saying, hey, wait a minute, don't really understand that, you know, I get it, you have a business to run, I get it, it's within your contract, but what can we do here because we want our product to be widely available. And I think it's a mistake, and I think it's old thinking for the Blazers to go all in with a regional sports network and, you know, we're watching them fail nationally Maybe some of it is greed, some of it is the market pushing back. But we're watching the RSNs fail, and we're seeing some teams that had partnerships with those regional sports networks just say, hey, we're going to do something different. We're, we're going to value the over-the-air product. 
And really what they're saying is they're going to value distribution over guaranteed revenue. The NBA's got a television contract with the league and, and the teams that pays the bills. The regional sports programming, it can be worth 10 to $20 million a year for these teams, is valuable to a certain extent, but even more valuable, probably worth more than 10 to $20 million, frankly, if we're looking at this from a tangible and intangible viewpoint, is the relationship that the franchise has with young fans. And I railed on the Blazers this week, and I said, look, this is the wrong time for the product to not be... We interrupt this podcast with a special announcement from the Bald Face hey, Sorry to interrupt the podcast, but if you want to listen to more of the Bald Face Truth Radio Show, including more of this segment that you're listening to, make sure you subscribe on SoundCloud and iTunes to the Bald Face Truth Radio Show. Thanks for listening.